Hey, it's Arrow, and this is PodFest, episode number 31. Three back-to-back conversations with real people of entertainment, politics, science, medical, or cooks in their own kitchen. PodFest 31 features a true one-on-one conversation with actor Danny Trejo. If you're into old movies that feel brand new, The Inmate Number 1 is it. Then, we're headed into the studio with master mixer-songwriter Dave Auday, who has levitated so many sounds into a new atmosphere of music. And we'll wrap things up with one of my all-time favorite authors. This is my 2018 conversation with the absolutely incredible David Baldacci. This is PodFest 31. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Danny Trejo. Great, great. Arrow. Dude, I got to tell you, this this is coming out inmate number one at the absolute perfect time because we are living in an age of uncertainty right now, and a lot of people are turning to drugs and alcohol to try to turn it off, and inmate number one is going to wake their butts up. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Errol is the lead singer of a band called Starcrawler. That's, like, really cool. Yeah, punk rock. How, how does he spell his name? How does he spell his name? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So in any way along your journey, and you've had one hell of a journey, did you ever think that your life was actually a movie in the making? You know what, Errol? I I, I never thought I was going to get out of prison. (laughs) We could could, could start there. So I've I've been on God's time since 1968. And... and, uh, you know, like, I don't, all I do is help people. Everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. And, and in fact, I made a deal with God in 1968. If you let me die with dignity, I'll say your name every day, and I will do whatever I can for my fellow man. I asked God a couple of days ago, hey, God, how am I doing? He says, hey, you're almost out of hell. Keep it up, yeah. <laughs> Keep it up. Keep working toward helping people. Before you went to prison, I mean, those those people on the inside, you know, they, they knew that Danny Trejo was one day coming. But now your image is, if Danny Trejo is coming, you better look at your own personal life and find out what Danny Trejo is going to talk about and what he's bringing. You know, I, I, I this documentary, the thing about this documentary that I love it, I, 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 I go to schools and I go to prisons and I go to juvenile halls, and I, and I honestly believe that that I can show this. And I can say, look, I've been on that road. I've been on the road you that you've been on. Most most of the prisons in the United States, in the world, really know know me from because they show you know they, you know all, everything I do. They show in prison, you know. So so I'm I'm a, I'm a, how do you say it? Uh, people know me, so they, they kind of listen, and, and I, I really thank God for that. Yeah, but you, you know what's really great about this is that inmate number one should prove to everybody inside those prisons and outside that there that you have proven to the world that you, we can have second chances, that we can still believe in you. Exactly. It's not where you start, it's where you end. Your transformation, one of the things that people uh, are going to learn about watching Inmate Number 1 is your focus, your accountability. And the thing is, is that most actors might want to keep that to themselves. Not you, not Danny Trejo. He's out there spreading, you know, how to focus, how to get accountability. You know, all I know is, is uh, it's funny, I, I like what Eddie Bunker once said when I first started getting famous a little bit. He said... Just remember, Danny, everybody can think you're a movie star, but you can't. And I, what do you mean? And, and we he says, come here. And we went to buy where there was a couple of movie stars, and and people were talking to them and sucking on them and being, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And then, you know, when they walked away, I, everybody that say, I hate that punk, and they wanted to shoot him. But damn, that's what happens when people think they're entitled. You know, so I've never forgotten what it is to work construction. I've never forgotten what it is to be in prison. I've never forgotten what it is to, to wonder where you're going to get food for your kids. What is it like for you to go through that transition of you once said that to be a criminal, you got to be a criminal 24 hours a day? Well, Danny Trejo in 2020 is a man of the community because you've got businesses that you've invested in that puts that community to work. And every one of them is did the same thing is to give back. You know, it's like we give food to the homeless. You know, during this this pandemic, you know, it's like I do public, uh, you know, wear mask and I, we go to uh, we feed we feed uh, uh, the, we feed people and and we we deliver food and and we've uh, uh, every every time we deliver food, the women are always the children. Do you have pampers? Do you have pampers? I was wondering what's up with pampers. And I didn't know stores were out of Pampers. And so we got 150 boxes of Pampers. And, uh, God, first of all, I didn't know they were that expensive. And then we still, we passed out Pampers. And the women were so unbelievably grateful, you know. And uh, I thought, wow, man, that's amazing. But Mario Castillo, my assistant, who I met in San Quentin, said, wow, we went from being shot callers in San Quentin to passing out pampers. Yeah. You realize if we go back to the pen, our nicknames will be Huggies. <laughs> hey, Huggies. <laughs> if you had not been inmate number one, where would you be today? How would your life be lived out right now? I think I think I would have just, yeah, I would have been a drug counselor, which is just amazing. I'm still a drug counselor. I work for Western Pacific Med Corps. My CEO, Mark Hickman, lets me do movies, and he said no because this is our platform. You know, this is how we get people to come. And it is so. So uh, you know, I am a, I'm a, I'm a drug counselor first, and 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 really, I'm an actor. You know, second, uh, you know. I just, uh, acting is my platform, really. You, you know what's going to happen, Danny, is that people are going to watch this movie, Inmate Number 1, and then they're going to reach out to you to try to figure out ways how they can clean up their own lives. Is there a website? Well, uh, you know what, hey, look up uh, uh, Western Pacific Medcorp. It's like, I'm always there. And uh, if you uh, want to ever find me on during the week, I'm at Chubby's Automotive on, in Fillmore. <laughs> Working on my old cars. That's my. That is, my daughter says, "Daddy, if anybody wanted to kill you, it'd be simple. They just go buy chubby." <laughs> See, and that right there is a television show waiting to happen. In the way that you're working on those old cars, I want to see how you break those cars down. Well, you got to see them. I got some beauties. Man. I got a 1936 Dodge Touring Sedan that we built. I got a 56 Chevy uh, Bel Air Chop Top. Blue and white, unbelievable. American graffiti looking fucker. <laughs> well, you got to come back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you, Mr. Danny Trejo. God bless you. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. You enjoy yourself today, okay, sir? You rock. Thank you. Thank you, Arrow. <laughs>
I've always thought of it as being listening beyond sound. You can take what has been created and produced in the moment and hear things beyond this present place we stand. That's the art of Dave Day. Hey, it's Arrow inside the LA Productions.us studio, unplugged and totally uncut with Dave Day. Hi, it's Dave Day. Dave Day, the man that has the vision to see the future and the ears to take people there to it, man. <laughs> something like something like that. Oh, my goodness. I, I wish I could be in the studio with you when you go in to listen to a song because you obviously hear things beyond the sound. Well, I hear a lot of things. Uh, sometimes it's my kids uh, yelling at me and asking me for stuff. Sometimes it's my wife, uh, you know, asking me to do like some jobs around the house and get out of the studio. Uh, but I do hear I do hear things in my head and that's that's part of being able to produce music and you've been able to do that so masterfully i mean is it something that that it it was a process to get there or have you always been this this connected to music i've been loving music since i was a kid and and i always dreamed of doing something in music and when i was a kid i didn't even know that what i do today was even a a job or or a way to make money or be in music and somehow just the love my love of music as a kid turned into something i'm doing now Is there even a part of this world that has not been affected by what's what's cruised through your imagination and your fingertips? Well, there's a there's certainly a couple a couple people that I <laughs> that haven't come across the Dave Day thing, but um, I've, I've certainly definitely uh, worked on a lot of projects. I, I love the way that critics have said that you are the sonic solution, and when you step back and look at that, it's and then you listen to the music, you're going, yeah, that really really expresses it. <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard that, but I mean, that's 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 wonderful that I'm somebody. Somebody considers me a solution. I, I think that's great. <laughs> do you, do you sit in there and and break down the songs and stuff and put them on the individual tracks? What is the actual Dave Day uh, uh, um, way of getting into this? That you know, the mind, body, and soul of a piece of music. That's a great question. I, I really don't have a, a straight answer, except it, it's something that I've done so much at this point that it's kind of just sub- subconscious. When I'm doing a song, I just sort of do it, if that makes sense. There's not like a, 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 an ABC one, two, three way of, of, of doing every song. I just kind of pull, pull, start pulling things in and start doing things. It's, as weird as that sounds, it's very <laughs> subconscious, and I have no idea what I did when I'm done with it. That, that's in that part of the art of it all, though. It's, it's almost like Picasso. You've hung the painting for it to dry now. Yes, exactly. But me and Picasso are very similar, yes. I mean, you've got to love the way that technology continues to open up, you know, where art is coming from and things. And then and then you're the dentist that goes in there and works on the teeth. You know, <laughs> I love the analogy. I, I, uh, I'm very, I wake up every day very fortunate and blessed to be able to make, to make music for a living. Are you on a time schedule? I mean, I come into this studio at 5.30 every morning. What, what's your schedule? My schedule uh, lately has been 7 a.m., and I leave here about 11.30, 12, midnight. Really? See, you know, I mean, once you're in this room, I mean, I mean, the average person doesn't understand what happens, do they? No, I just sort of, I, I forget about the rest of the world, and um, 
I just do my thing. And, you know, I do take breaks. I, I do have three kids, so I do take some breaks and, and do stuff with them and pick them up from school. But uh, I'm here for the most part, at least 12 hours a day. How has that podcast paid off for you? I mean, because, I mean, podcasting is still so new. And, and it's just one of those things. But yet you're a major part of that as well. Uh, I've been, you know, I just started doing a podcast years ago. I guess when I found out what a podcast was, I said, no, nah, it sounds kind of cool. It really a podcast for me. It's just a way for me to kind of really let some new music that I think is cool sink into my brain. Um, so that helps me when I'm DJing and also when I'm producing records. Man, I, see, I'm, I'm a DJ as well. Don't you love those moments when you can take it out there onto that floor and people begin to react? Oh, yeah, that's 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 why I DJ. I mean, I'm certainly not DJing for for the money. <laughs> <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things where it, when you're in the clubs and things like that, I love what, when people first walk in and I, and I have a clear view to that front door. I got to get them there where where in your heart do you think that you've got to get them uh man i just want people to have fun you know and and there's there's clubs that i'm able to sort of do whatever i want and then there's clubs or venues that you have to sort of <laughs> figure out what they want um my my job is to just make sure everybody's hearing something that's familiar and that gets them moving and gets them forgetting about maybe getting a drink or forgetting about uh, other things that they, you know, looking at their phone for five minutes. I mean, it's really about, man, it's 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 just the same thing I've been doing my whole career of DJing, which is getting people to actually dance, which is uh, a lost art form, I think. Do you think that's also when, when you put something familiar out there that the, the dancer also becomes their own little American Idol rock star self? Absolutely. It's about, you know, these days because of technology and people are able to listen to so many different things. I, you know, I'm hoping that uh, listeners and, and people on the dance floor are actually getting more. Um, um, uh, they actually know more about the music you're playing, I think. Because they're not, they don't have to go buy it on vinyl. They can actually hear it, you know, on my podcast or or online or other places. So uh, I think I think people actually are a little bit more knowledgeable about uh, who's making what. So you've you've pretty much become the new mixtape then. I mean, this is this is how before we used to just you know swap out mixtapes at, at you know at the the Warp Festival. But now, I mean, we come to your podcast and we learn a lot. Well, I don't know if you're learning anything, but I mean, it's it's because of Shazam and and technology. You're, you know, people are able to, to to find out who's making what, um, which is something that wasn't around uh, when we were making mixtapes. And uh, like you said, years ago, and I made, you know, thousands of, of mixtapes and um, people, it was fun to have a mixtape, but nobody knew who was who was making the music on the mixtape. Hey, we've got something in common. Her name is Yoko Ono. We have Yoko Ono in, in common. I just finished a new one for Yoko wow. last week. <laughs> That's awesome. I love last her week. pizzazz. Yoko is a legend. I mean, come on. I mean, that's as close as I'll ever get to John Lennon. Moonlight streaming 
She's carried his uh, his legend on all these years, and she continues to do that. And and uh, what a great what a great. And by the way, a lot of people don't know more about Yoko Ono than just John Lennon connection. And there's so much more there that people don't realize, and um, which I've I've grown to to know a lot more about Yoko just working on. I think I've remixed like 15 of her songs at this yeah. point. Did she talk about the art show that traveled across the country last year? You know. Um, I know about that, and I also know about the John Lennon bus. I see that every year at uh, at uh, NAM, and uh, t- yeah, I mean, I, again, she's a huge philanthropist mm-hmm. and does a lot for the world that people just don't. Unless you unless you follow Yoko Ono, you don't know about. Right, right, dude. I want to congratulate you on on giving yourself permission to be as creative as you are, because without you, you really, I mean, you you really have done an incredible thing with with music. You as you push it forward. Well, thank you. I, 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 I it's, it, it's, it means a lot to hear from people um, like yourself because that's why I'm, that's why I'm in here. Hey, you can find Dave Aday on Facebook at Dave Aday Music, or just check in with him at DaveAday.com. Unplugged and totally uncut with David Baldacci. Congratulations on yet another book, but this one has Atlee in it, and I'm telling you, I, I feel a vibe about this Atlee that this is going to take you to places that, that you're going to be growing new into. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed writing it. I th- she was cool. It was a blast. The whole story came together really well. When you, when you come up with a name like Atlee, where did it arrive from? Is it somebody that you met along the way, or did it hit you in the middle of the night? Well, Adley is, a, is an old Southern name, and, when my, and outside of Richmond, where my parents used to live, get off the highway at 95, you go right to their house. If you go left, you go to an area in Richmond called Adley, yeah. and there's an Adley High School down there, and it could be uh, a boy or a girl's name as well. It's just, it was a different name. I've always kind of liked it, and um, it's not one you hear a lot. And her last name, Pine, you know, just kind of hit me as well. I like the short, you know, blunt force of the last name, and voila, there was Adley Pine. See, that's the way radio people are, too, when it comes to the names that we choose, you know, because that's the name that we have to live up to every day. And you're right. Atlee Pine is a powerful name in this age of super women. And you're giving her an identity right now. Yeah, I really wanted to do that. I wanted to make her kind of unique and give her, you know, quite a, a traumatic background. Uh, and not just to do it for the sake of doing it, but really to kind of show what motivates her and drives her forward in the job that she does. I'm glad you brought up the background. That was absolutely one of the things I was going to talk about, that this book actually deals with her past and, and, and into becoming who she is today. Yeah, really, really much so. She was a, she was one of twins. Her sister's name was Mercy Pine. That's that's where the title comes from, Long Road to Mercy. When they were six years old, they were living in Macon, Georgia, and the guy threw, came through their window at night and did a nursery rhyme, you know, thumped their forehead with each word, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. And so the way the word, the rhyme is worded, the number of words it has, if you, whoever you start with, you're going to end on the other person, and that was Mercy. And the guy took Mercy and almost killed Adelaide. Mm. And it's been almost 30 years. She has no idea if her twin is dead or alive, has no idea who took her, what happened to her. And I one thing that motivates Atlee is that she feels like she's living two lives instead of one, her own, but also a life for her sister that she never had the chance to realize. It's interesting you say that because I, I because one of the things that I wanted to talk about today, the separation between church and state, because she does lead those two lives. How is it that she's able to be in the FBI and be able to deal with her past as well? Because they're two completely different people. 
Yeah, they really are. And I think she compartmentalizes well. Uh, she has this motivating force to want to investigate. It's almost like every case she takes on, it's like she's making up for the fact that, one, she survived. She has right. survivor skills. And two, she could never solve the mystery of what happened to her, her sister. Um, so I think that's how she compartmentalizes, and that's the force behind her. That's how she sort of keeps herself balanced and straight. But she is a loner. You know, she moved out to the western United States because it's not really heavily populated. She sort of has her own gig. Nobody bothers her. She goes about her job and does what she needs to do. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the results for her that count. You're going to let her grow into into a bigger character, aren't you? Because, I mean, this is the type of character that my, my, my father grew up, or when I was around my father growing up, I mean, he always read the books about these these one particular people and Atley Pine seems to be that kind of person that people are going to levitate toward. I really think so. I mean, she's just got she's she's got this vulnerability, but at the same time, she has this quality that I think people will find attractive. She's kind of a cool character. She tries to do the right thing. She has some unique skills. She doesn't always make the right decision. You know, she doesn't always win every battle. You know, and particularly in the book, you know, she gets defeated a couple of times. Um, so I think that that you know, sort of is a winning combination. People really can relate to that, and they they root for her. Make, making her real makes it to point even younger readers can say, "I have to read what she's doing in this." This book, uh, Long Road to Mercy, because they can relate with with the fact that she does bump in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, she does. I mean, again, I wouldn't. I was not going to write, you know, this perfect person and this, you know, who never makes mistakes and always makes the right decision. That's just not plausible. It's certainly in the field that she works in, um, she solves mysteries, you know, by de facto default. She doesn't know everything about the case and she's going to run into some situations that she's going to have a hard time confronting and handling but she does the best she can. How'd you do the research on this? Because we have an FBI headquarters here in Charlotte and, and man that place is very, very tight. You, you put some authenticity in this but how did you get that? You know, I've been. I have a lot of friends who work in the FBI, and okay. I talked to several of them for the uh, for this book. Um, the resident agency is they're like satellite offices. You know, you have the major agencies. There are uh, almost sixty of them. They're in big places like Phoenix and Washington and Chicago and New York. But then you have a whole host of smaller agencies throughout the country, um, and they can be as small as two two agents. I made Shattered Rock. It's a fictional town. I just came up with a one person agency, but that's plausible. You know, and she has a lot of ground to cover, and she doesn't have a lot of resources. She has one assistant, Carol Blum sort of her secretary slash assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, so these resident agencies play a big role, you know, in, in actually in the, in the FBI because they cover a lot of places where there are still people who live there, still people have issues and all that, but not a huge federal presence. Somebody doesn't just suddenly become an FBI agent. Will we somewhere along the line be able to go through the struggles and the testing that, that, that she had to go through in order to become who she is with the FBI? Absolutely. You know, that's in the future book, that's definitely going to be something I'm going to flesh out more because I want people to understand how hard this was. Yep. You know, the FBI is still very much a man's world. Um, and it's almost like as a woman, she had to be twice as good uh, to get to the same level. Um, and I, and definitely in a future book, I want to show people exactly what she had to go through to get which, where she is. Are you a daily writer? And the reason why I bring that up is because your word description is like you're sitting right here in this room with me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love to, to play with the words every day, and I, I write just about every day. And even when I just came back from a book tour and I was writing every day on a story that I wanted to sort of get out that I had thought about. Uh, so, yeah, every day I get up another day to sort of play around the words, and that's something I love. Are you using a writing instrument such as – I hate to use the word pen because I, I, I believe that a, a writing instrument deserves to have more respect than P-E-N. 
<laughs> yes, I, I, I use that. I have lots of notebooks where I keep notes and yep. I, you know, I do my little outlines. I use a computer to compose a lot, but I love to edit in longhand with my pen. I like to see the blood on the page. Spe- speaking of those notes, do you ever just put anything down inside that writing and you come back to it knowing that it's going to become a part of the next book or, or, you, or you're building your paragraphs? You go, you know what? Just the other day, a thought came to mind. I need to go get it from that book. Yeah, it's um, I've done that before, where something that you've an idea you jotted down that maybe not work for the book that you're uh, doing right now, but can always come back. You know, I never say never when it comes to that right. because there's lots of things that uh, you know fit doesn't fit somewhere, but you can find a place for it. You know, you're right about conspiracy. The, the the thing about conspiracy, do you have to live it first in order to write about it, or do you ever are you ever afraid of it because you put it down on paper? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I've kind of done it both ways, and you just never know sometimes. Um, so for me, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I certainly read a lot about conspiracy theories and, you know, sort of you know, immerse myself in that world as well, because you never know where you're going to find an interesting inspiration for something. But these days, I mean, it, it seems like people will believe anything if it's on the Internet, and they see it more than once. <laughs> so that, that, that can be a problem. Because it's always it's always one of those things where it's like, am I the messenger here or am I the one that's basically just kind of just exposing something about a character and readers are going to go into this thinking it's it's a real story because that's how well you write. Well, you know, sometimes I'm always try to be careful about that. You know, it's, it's definitely in the fictional section of every bookstore, but sometimes we get emails and people say, oh, my God, this must have really happened because it describes so vividly. Do you think it could happen? And. We try to we tr- we walk a very fine line there, but we make it very clear that this is a product of my imagination, uh, to the extent that I know, and this has not happened. I don't, can't predict it if it will happen, and I just hope you enjoyed the story. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you keep the emotions intact, though? Because I'm, I too am a writer, and there are times where it just consumes me so much that I'll, I'll carry it through the rest of the day because my mind is on those on those pages and not necessarily in the reality of the actuality. Yeah, you know, it's it. I totally get immersed that way as well, and it's like you're in this world and uh, of your own making, and nothing else exists outside of it. And then, you know, at the, at the end of the day, though, you got to get up and you got to open the door and walk back out into the real world. Yeah. Um, and I think having that balance is important. That's so funny you say that because the I, I, I sit in this studio overlooking a forest here in Charlotte, and my dog will come up and bump me, and that's her way of saying you got to get out of the studio and go out there. Do you have the same kind of things that that, that kind of get you outside? Yeah, I have I have dogs as well, so I I, have, I love nothing better than to take them for a long walk because it's it. great to spend time with them and have fun with them. But at the same time, you're thinking about another story. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. If if Atlee were sitting in your room right now, your writing room, and she was reading how how incredible the critics love her story, what would she say? You know, I think that she would uh, she'd be kind of casual and nonchalant about it. Um, I think she's uh, girded herself to where that she doesn't allow herself to get too low and doesn't allow herself to get too high, because uh, that balance is really important to her. Otherwise, sometimes her emotions might run away with her. Well, congratulations on this book. You've done a brilliant job by introducing us to Atlee Pine. I mean, is what what a brilliant step that you've taken here. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I look forward to bringing her back again. Now, one thing I really want to talk about is the Wish You Well Foundation. Please let us know everything about this so that we can touch writers all over the world. You know, the, the Wish You Well Foundation, my wife and I started it about 18 years ago, and we fund, you know, largely out of our own pocket, uh, literacy organizations and initiatives across the country. Um, and we've funded programs virtually all 50 states and counting, and we'll continue to do so. We had a spectacular year this year. We funded over 40 organizations uh, across a variety of platforms and a variety of states. 
put you know, millions of dollars into it because I feel like, you know, high level of reading is a one essential skill you need to have, particularly in the information world that we live in today. Not just because of the work that you might do um, or pleasurable reading that you might do on a beach, um, but just being a participant in democracy as a citizen. I mean, how do you how do you can you think about the issues and process all the information to decide who to vote for and all that if you can't read at a high level? If you can't, then unfortunately there are lots of people around who'll tell you exactly what you should think and who you should vote for. And I don't think that's a good thing.